Good morning. It is so good to be with you all uh, today and getting to worship the God who is deserving of all honor, praise, and glory. My name is Nathan. If you do not know me, um, I am one of the pastors, a connection and college pastor here at Hope Fellowship. Uh, And today we are wrapping up our Better Together series. It's a two-week series where we're looking and having this conversation about community, uh, why we are better together, and then what does it look like for us to actually be together in this context. And we're doing so by walking through the book of Galatians still in our normal series, where last week, Pastor Mark talked about our newfound adoption in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and how you and I have been adopted into this new family, and because of that, our trajectory has changed, and because we have this new family, that is why we are better together. And then this week, we're in this passage, and we get a complicated picture of community. And when I say complicated, I mean that it's a pretty obscure text, in that we don't get a lot of the specifics that are usually necessary for us to understand the full meaning and the full context behind this passage. Uh, One commentator says about this set of verses, we really have no idea what Paul is talking about specifically, but we have a good idea of what the general thrust is behind everything that he is saying. That's about 80% of my quiet time reading is, I really have no idea what's going on here, but I think I get the main idea. And it's really important that when we encounter texts like these that are complicated, uh, that we make sure that we have a firm understanding of the overarching theme and thrust behind every single thing. And as I was wrestling with this text earlier in the week, and and wrestling is a great way to put it, uh, there was one phrase in particular that just jumped out, grabbed me, and refused to let go. And it comes in the back half of, of, of Galatians 4, where he writes, until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you, I could not get that phrase out of my head, and I cannot get that phrase out of my head today. And so while we are going to be talking about community, and we're going to be talking about what it looks like for you and for me to be together, I think it's absolutely important that we talk about a couple things before we even have this conversation about community. And so just to kind of give you a layout and a kind of a map of where we're going to be walking through today, I want us to really understand and see this whole expounding on what it means for Christ to be formed in us, as this is the theme and the goal for Paul to see in these Galatians. And then two, I want to see that in, and as we, we, our goal is to see Christ formed in us, he has called us and enabled us to do a spirit-powered work to see Christ formed in us. And then finally, we'll talk about how community fits into all of this. Sound good to everyone? Thank you, Pastor Mark. Good. All right, so before we do anything, would you all pray with me? He's in it, guys. Come on. Let's, let's, let's be like, anyways, let's just pray. God, we are so thankful to be in your presence. We are thankful to be in this place. And we thank you that this is a joyful place to be, to worship you, to celebrate you, to honor you, to praise you, and to glorify you. God, I pray that you would bring about a clarity in our lives today, that you would bring about a spirit, holy focus in our life so that we could better pursue you, we could better follow you, and we could better be like you in everything that we do. God, give me the words today, speak through me, and I pray that you would be glorified in and through it all. It's your name we pray. And every single person said... Amen. There we go. All right. Well, let's go ahead and open your Bibles to Galatians 4, 8 through 20, um, if you have not already done so, and pull your attention directly to verse 19, where we're going to read the full context that Paul gives behind him saying, until Christ is formed in you. And this is what he writes. He says, my little children, talking to the Galatians, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. 
Paul is potentially the boldest man to ever walk the face of the earth because he is describing the depth of his passion, desire, willingness, and pain that he feels in his heart to see Christ formed in the Galatians like a woman giving birth. Paul, a man, describes his pain like a woman giving birth. And as some of you know, Cassie is less than three weeks away from giving birth roughly to our daughter. We are super excited about it. Definitely a little bit nervous and we would appreciate your prayers, but mostly excited about it. I was kind of praying that God would put her into labor right now because I feel like that'd be a pretty cool story to tell and a great sermon illustration in like five years somewhere, but it would not be ideal. But we have someone in here who could deliver a baby, right? Anyone out there who could? Okay, no one. Gosh, do not go into labor right now. But in this process of her uh, growing the child inside of her womb, uh, I have been learning a lot about labor, whether it's from her uh, reading a book that she gave me that I I need to read. I'm like halfway through it right now. There's some pretty graphic images in there. And then watching some YouTube videos about it that are now imprinted on my mind that I'll never be able to forget. Uh, But I am realizing that in all of this process of learning about labor, my eighth grade health and science sex ed class did a terrible job of explaining what labor is actually like. So let me tell you a couple of lessons I've learned about labor and giving birth to a child because we really need to understand why Paul uses this analogy specifically. First, as a man, never compare your pain to that of a woman giving birth. It is not ever going to go well and it does not compare whether it's a kidney stone or, or something else that we're all thinking of right now too. That labor is not synonymous with pushing. This is a new one for me. Definitely thought that when a woman said she was going to labor, like the baby was there and that she was pushing it out at that very moment. So I was like, we need to get you to a hospital. So you can imagine my surprise when my sisters told me that they were in labor for 20 plus hours. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it out loud, thankfully. I was like, they were pushing for 24 hours? Like what they do in the movie where they're just like screaming brutally and they're just pushing this thing. I was like, that is insane, right? Never vocalized it, thankful for that. But I've learned that, Labor is not synonymous with pushing. And then three, and I knew this, but it has become very evident to me that labor is an extremely long, painful, arduous process. Because you got like pre-pre-labor, you got pre-labor, then you got labor where there's like passive labor and active labor. And the whole time they're not pushing, but the pain is that the uterus is contracting and relaxing, opening up the cervix so that there's an opening big enough for the baby to come out as the woman pushes. And I realize that you are not come here for a lesson on labor, and I'm probably not preaching for a while because I just gave you the whole process of the cervix opening up and all of that good stuff. If you're a husband and you don't have a kid yet, start taking notes. Um, I'll give you a couple good YouTube videos to watch too. Um, But in all of this, what has stood out to me the most is that even though we are aware of how painful this is, and even though this is an experience of of pain and tests and one of the, the, the highest points of pain that a human can bear, women wantingly and knowingly walk into this with a a sense of expectancy and joy and a little bit of anger and probably some other things as well. Why? Because they know what's waiting on the other side. They're willing to labor through this. They're willing to go and put their bodies through all that because they know that they're bringing in and they feel this deep love for the child that they're bringing into this new life. I've also learned that I'm grateful to be a man. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that he is willing to labor over these Galatians. He's willing to love them in such a way that brings them into this new life, all because of the immense love that he feels over them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he says, until, that's a key word, until Christ is formed in you, because it's not going to be this immediate, instantaneous, complete moment where labor is not synonymous with pushing, but that it is a process that is going to be slow, painful, expectant, joy-filled, angry, and frustrating. And this is what Christ is ushering us into as new children, as new believers. You and I are called sons and daughters. And what that means is that he is bringing us into a new life where by his grace, he has rewritten the desires of our heart. And he has also then given us the spirit to carry out those desires, those new desires of our heart. So that just like a ch- a, 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 an infant becomes a, a toddler and a toddler becomes an adolescent and an adolescent becomes an adult. So we are now on this new journey of being becoming the children that God has created and called us to be all through his grace. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, if he wants to have the kingdom of God, inherit the kingdom of God and enter into eternal life, he needs to be born again. Or you see throughout the New Testament, this theme of dying to your old self and being reborn, like in Matthew 16, 24, when he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or earlier in Galatians 2.20, Paul's already telling the churches of Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been killed with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is this repetitive theme that we are a new creation, that we have a new life. And in that, it shifts the importance from what we do into who we are becoming. Because before this new birth, there was nothing that you could ever do. There was nothing you could accomplish. There was nothing that you could say to ever reestablish the relationship with Christ. And you were on this journey. You were becoming more like the world that we live in, which is broken and sinful and slaves to something. But when we are reborn... We then enter into a new life. We enter into a new trajectory where we are aiming towards something different. And because of that, it causes us to live different. You and I are now on this journey of becoming more like the person that Christ has created and called us to be by Christ being formed in and through us. So before we can talk about anything else, we have to make sure that we understand that the most basic need of our souls and the overarching goal for your life is that Christ would be formed in us, plain and simple. In all the long list of goals that you have for your life, the one that should always be and that we should strive to put as number one overarching and infiltrating every other aspect of our life is this desire that Christ would be formed in us, that we would look more like him because he is more in us. This is what we should be willing to painfully and willingly labor over because it does not matter what we do if we are not becoming more like Christ. And this was Paul's frustration and concern for the churches in Galatia. It seemed like they had missed this whole point of the gospel where it's not about what you do, it's about who you are becoming. Just look at verses 8 through 11 for a moment where he writes, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
We have to remember that this passage falls right in the midst of Paul expounding on this theologically rich topic where in verses 1 through 7, he's talking about this idea of us being sons and daughters. And then verse 21 and on after this passage, he's talking about the children of the promise that Pastor Mark will preach on next week. But it feels like here in these 13 verses, he just puts a pause on this topic and he just takes on this fatherly tone. Verse 11 is the most dad phrase ever. I fear I may have labored over you in vain. That's him saying, I'm not mad. Right? I'm just disappointed in you. And he's disappointed because he knows, he has seen in these people's hearts that they have experienced the tangible presence of God. He knows that they have encountered this deep rest, this fulfillment, this peace that comes from the presence of God. He knows the gospel that he has communicated to them is Christ and only Christ crucified. And yet they have continued to turn back to the elementary principles of the world so that they are more focused on working for their salvation rather than working from their salvation. They were more focused and more concerned about what they were doing than in who they were becoming. And I can just imagine Paul sitting down, hearing this news, rubbing his temples, going, what are they doing? They've missed the point of the gospel. They've missed what it has done for us, what it has restored for us. The gospel restores us to be able to be in his presence and by his presence be transformed. Back in Genesis 3, there's this thing called the fall where sin enters the world and our relationship with God is broken so that we can no longer be in his presence because we are not perfect, righteous, pure, or holy. And the reality that still stands today and will stand for the rest of time is only that which is pure, righteous, and holy can be in the presence of God. And so in the Old Testament, God sent something called the law to Moses to try to give us a way so that we could live perfectly and then we could be in a relationship with him. God's heart for us has always been to restore this relationship with us. And in the Old Testament, you should look at the law and not look at it as restraining or anything like that, but you should look at it as a love letter from God saying, this is how much I love you. I want to give you every single step you need to take. I'm going to write this out in complete detail that makes it boring to us, maybe to figure out how many doves we need to, to sacrifice or what kind of chickens we need to wave in front of the altar or anything like that. But he says, no, no, I'm going to give you everything that you need because I want to know you. I want you to know me. And so in Leviticus and in all these books in the Old Testament, we see him laying out all the commandments you need to obey, all the sacrifices you need to make for your atonement. He he lays out all of these things simply so that you could be perfect and then be in his presence. It's the order of, of the Old Testament where it's obey his commandments, live perfectly, and then be in his presence. But here's what the gospel does. It reorders the events necessary to encounter, engage with, and be made aware of his presence. The gospel flips everything on his head so that he then indwells within us. He knows us, right? He says, you have known God, or rather, you have been known by God. And saying that God has initiated this relationship. He's the one who stepped into your life and filled you with his presence so that you could be declared perfect and righteous. So that when the father looks at you, he sees someone who is perfect and righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of who Christ is and in now who you are becoming through the work of Christ on the cross. So that then from his presence and from the perfection that he declares over us, we now obey his commandments. 
It is a reordering of the necessary events for us to be able to have this restored relationship with God. And the gospel does not get rid of the law. It's not that we no longer have to set up disciplines and rhythms and observe traditions in order to be in his presence or be made aware of his presence. It's just that now it's not contingent on those things. It's that now we do these things. We obey his commandments because we have his presence in us. Because his grace has rewritten the desires of our heart and because out of the great grace and love for us, he has given us a spirit in us so that we can fulfill and carry out those desires. Friends, this frees us to do what he has commanded us to do, not out of a fear of making a mistake and going to hell, not out of an anxiety to be perfect and that if you mess up, there's gonna be some lightning that comes down and and snaps you on the butt or something like that. But it is something out of a place of holy rest and contentment that we work. The greatest misconception outside of working for our faith is thinking that we don't have to do anything because of our faith. Failing to miss out on this fact of all of these analogies that are used throughout the New Testament of toiling, laboring, striving, running a race. Because the reality is that now because of the gospel, you and I have been enabled and empowered to run the race that we once could never win. His presence is what causes a deep want, desire, and work to see Christ formed in us. First Timothy 4.10 says, For it is for this we labor and strive. Those are two acts of doing something until you are tired. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is a savior of, of, of all men, especially of, of believers. Because our hope is fixed on Christ, we now labor and strive. Not for him, but because we have him and because we desire and we crave more of his presence. Second Peter 1, 5, starting there, he says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities are yours and increase and they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, he's not saying that it changes your salvation. It doesn't change the status of the justification through Christ and by his grace. But when we are making every effort, when we are laboring on towards Christ to see Christ formed in us, it keeps us from being what? ineffective and unfruitful. It puts a practice to the knowledge that we now have through the spirit in us. And this is where I know we can start to feel tension in our heart going, wait, wait, wait. I thought grace prevented me from having to work. I thought grace meant that I can rest in these things. And I think Dallas Willard says it best when he says, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Because friends, effort is the evidence of the spirit in us. It's the evidence of our heart now being pointed towards Christ. It's the evidence of a new goal and desire in us to see Christ formed in us. And because of that, we are called, enabled, and empowered and have a deep desire to do spirit-powered work. And I don't just want to leave us with this metaphysical thought that you need to do spirit-powered work. I want to give us something that you can practice, something that I believe that if you are faithful and diligent in doing in your day-to-day life, in the mundane routine moments of your life, it'll be so that no matter if you are in the woods seeking God, if you are in the shower singing songs in the morning, or if you're in a quiet time or at a lunch break at work, you will be able to be made aware of and engage with the tangible presence of God. 
I would call these the steps to formation. The steps to seeing Christ formed in us that we can see throughout scripture that we're called to take. take. The, the first step is to know and be known by God. It's salvation. If you have not been justified by Christ, if he is not dwelling within you, if he has not known you, then the rest of these things are not going to matter because it's not about what you do. It's about who you are working to become through the power of the spirit in you. So step one is to be saved. Step two, sit in the presence of God. Nathan, that sounds like a really metaphysical thought. Let me bring it down onto then a more practical plane. Uh, It's this idea of discipline, rhythms, the way of Jesus, a rule of life, whatever you want to call it, whatever has been called in the past, in the second, 10 cent, wherever it's been called, it's the same idea of things that we can do, disciplines and rhythms that we can have in our daily life, monthly life, yearly life, so that then we can be made aware of and engage with the the tangible presence of God. Things like reading your Bible. This is not just a tool for us to, to gain knowledge. This is something that is active and living. It's something that we're called to meditate on, to chew on, to speak out loud, to speak over our life so that we can then see the very presence that we are pursuing. So that we can know the God who we are trying to have formed in us. So that we can see examples of God's goodness. So we can see examples of God's mercy and and love and magnitude and sovereignty and omnipotence and all of these amazing and wonderful attributes of God. We get to see in here so that we can know him more and become more like him. Or maybe it's prayer. Another discipline. It's spending time having a conversation with God. Rather, whether it's intercession where you're praying for things, you're praying for people, you're praying for your family, you're praying for yourself, whether it's contemplation where you're simply sitting and listening for the still small voice of the spirit of God, or maybe it's praise where you are simply just declaring who God is and what he has done through your scripture reading and through looking back in your life, declaring that back to God, thanking him for his faithfulness. Maybe it's Sabbath, observing a 24-hour period of rest every single week where you are not doing things that make you feel like you are working, but that you are genuinely celebrating the sovereignty of God by resting in it. It's a day full of delight where you are just delighting in the abundance of God that he has given to us. Maybe it's fasting, the opposite potentially of Sabbath, uh, where you are creating and instilling in you, you're re-sparking, you're rekindling a hunger for God. It's one of the most uh, misused, underused, and abused things in the church today, but it's something that's really important for us to to try to, to see how to do. Maybe it's solitude, getting away from the technology, getting away from the craziness of the world, and just going and simply being in his presence. There, there are five of those. There, there, there's, there's a lot more if you want to research into this topic, but these are just things that we can do that help us to sit in his presence, that help us to slow down, And to see that he is here if we would just be faithful in our pursuit. The third step in our formation that we need to be doing is copying what he does. To copy Jesus. We have been called to continue the way of Jesus. To continue the work of Jesus in this life. To make disciples who make disciples. To to heal the sick. To cast out demons in his name. To do all these things that Jesus did. And to do it in this context. We have been called to continue the work of Jesus. Of Christ, And so if we are, are looking at, if we don't even know what to do next, if we're feeling like we're, we're failing in these steps of formation, then it's really easy that we just get to look at Jesus, see what he did, and do it. We say what Jesus said if we don't know what to say. We pray how Jesus prayed if we don't know how to pray. We live how Jesus lived if we're unsure of how to live. The fourth 
is to pray without ceasing. Different from the discipline, but it's this idea that you're not gonna be able to do any of these things or more so maybe they're not really gonna matter anything if you're not connected to the source. To pray without ceasing means to be connected to the all-sustaining and satisfying power of God. When Paul says to pray without ceasing, he's not saying to bow your heads and go, dear Jesus, thank you for this day. I'm so grateful for you. 24-7, we have things to do, people to see, places to go, places to drive with your eyes open and hands on the wheel, all those different things. But what he is saying by saying praying without ceasing is to be connected always to the source, which is the spirit of God. And then fifth, and most encouragingly, repeat these for the rest of your life. Or repeat two through four for the rest of your life. C.S. Lewis has a quote saying, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing has yet been done. Can you go back to the steps of formation for me? This is where the toiling and the laboring comes into. It's not that we are working for our salvation. It is simply that we are working to become more like him through his presence who has been freely given to us. And listen to what I say when I say this, that doing these things is not what transforms you. Being in the presence of God is what transforms you. These are things to be made aware of the presence of God so that then he can move you from glory to glory through grace upon grace. Do we understand that? I fully believe that if you set up rhythms and disciplines in your life, you will be transformed more into the image of Christ by the power of the spirit who works in you because he is faithful. The ultimate overarching goal and the most basic need of our life is to see Christ formed in us. And the way we see that done is by faithfully doing the spirit-powered work that he has called, equipped, enabled, and empowered us to do. Everyone still with me? Sweet. Let's move on to this final point, this burning question that I can feel in the room of how does community fit into all of this? What does it look like for community to impact? Does community impact our formation in any way? And I do not mean to make this sound hyperbolic by any uh, way, shape, or form, but community has everything to do with our formation. Look at the picture that Paul gives in verses 12 through 18 of Galatians 4 when he writes, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, they being the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They, the Judaizers, want to shut you out. They want to isolate you that you may make much of them, that they will be dependent on the Judaizers for their source of knowledge and truth. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, he goes on to what we've already read this morning. One important note to make is that Paul's comment to become as I am, as I have become, as you are, is not an invitation simply to just blindly copy everything that Paul's doing. What Paul is doing here because he understands the power of community in our formation is that he is inviting them into a deep friendship of discipleship so that they could influence and impact each other as they take steps in their formation of Christ in them. 
This is the power that relationships have around us. They have the power to transform you more into the image of Christ, or they have the power to deform you more into the image of world that you have been saved from. If you don't believe me, look at the order of events again with me here. Paul comes to the churches of Galatia. He preaches to them the gospel and a movement begins. The spirit of God is is working. The gospel is doing what it always does, which is creating this mass movement in the people, changing lives. Paul stays with them and he's teaching to them. And you start to see this group and this community become an incredibly generous community. They're an honoring community where they receive Paul as if he was Jesus. They have this deep love instilled that is the love of Christ that would make them be willing to gouge out their eyes for Paul if he needed it. And so Paul then has to go because he's on this mission. He's on this journey and he's, he continues his journey knowing that he's going to write to them, trusting that they're going to continue to hold each other accountable in their pursuit of Christ and becoming more like him. And then in this, he starts to get word that they've started to fall back into old ways. He starts to get word that they have started to become offended easily, that they've become a weak community that's divided And it's all because they have pushed the gospel to the side, making things like circumcision and other Jewish traditions the main point. And in all of this, what we see is that where they once viewed Paul as and received Paul as and loved Paul as if he was Christ, they now view him as an enemy in which they are isolating themselves from him. What changed in all of this? Why do we see such a drastic change from Paul friend to Paul enemy? And the answer is the community that they were in had changed. When Paul's around them, you find this flourishing community that is centered on Christ. And then you see him leave and these people that we've talked about a lot, the Judaizers, come in. And what they do is they preach a false gospel that turns it in on itself. So that it makes you the savior of yourself. It plays to the pride that each of us feel that we want to have some ownership in this. We want to be a part of this, God. We want to have some semblance of control. And so the Judaizers taught a message that, that, that then allowed us to have this type of control, that allowed the Galatians to have the, the control that they were longing for. And because of that, you started to see them become divided because everyone has different opinions. You started to become uh, 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 weak because they were no longer strong in the gospel and they were no longer generous, hospitable, or embodying the person of Christ because they were not believing in the gospel of Christ. Their formation was directly correlated to the community that they found themselves in. The great Rhonda Beer, also known as my mom, said something to me when I was younger. She's a great scholar and theologian. And she said, the people who you hang out with is who you're going to become like. I had a pretty annoying friend, I think, that she was just really annoyed with when I was younger. But the saying stands true. It's not a new phrase, not a new thought at all. In fact, there's a great Yale a study done by Yale where they show that if you surrounded yourself with people who have like-minded goals, you're more likely to achieve them. If the friends around you had higher aspirations and more confidence, you were more likely to have higher aspirations and more confidence. If you had friends around you who quit smoking, you would be more likely to quit smoking. If you had friends around you who gained or lost weight, you would be more likely to gain or lose weight depending on what your friends do. And it's because your friends strongly influence how you perceive reality. David Brooks sums up the power of friendships and community by starting off with that very reality by saying, your friends strongly influence how you perceive reality. First, they strongly influence how you see yourself. Second, they shape how you see the world. And third, our friends alter our desires. Entering into a friendship can be a life-altering act, and entering into a friendship with someone different from yourself can be life transforming. This is the power that friendships, relationships, 
community, whatever you want to call it, has in our life. So look at the relationships that you have in your life. Honest look, not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but in your heart of hearts, look at the community that you have in your life. And when I say that, I mean the people whose words hold weight in you, the people who influence you, the people who you are affected positively or negatively by. What kind of relationships are those like? Do you find yourself in a community whose ultimate desire is to see Christ formed in themselves and they're willing to do anything that it takes to make that come to fruition? It's important to say that the answer is no. Don't just leave that group of people because God may be using you to influence them in the right direction. But I think it still holds and bears itself a question for us today of what do we do if we find ourselves without this type of nourishing, inspiring, and as we say here, life-giving community? Where do we go to find this type of community? And I think the answer that maybe we're thinking of right now is the church, right? The church is where we can find this type of community. It's where you can ask a mentor or someone to pour into you, someone to disciple you. It's where you can get involved in a a home group or a community group to walk alongside of people who are just going through life just like you, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus best in the midst of all the craziness of this world. It's where you find the place where everyone in it has placed as the ultimate desire in their hearts to see Christ formed in them, right? I would say absolutely this is the place for that. If you're looking for community, I truly believe that this can be it. But I think all more often than not, we come into communities like this with unrealistic expectations, forgetting that this place is filled with and led by imperfect people. This place is filled with and led by people who sometimes and oftentimes put things above the ultimate goal of our life. It is a struggle for me to do those steps of formation every day. It's a struggle that I lose sometimes. It's a struggle that I win sometimes. But thanks be to God that he is filled with grace, mercy, and he is faithful and steadfast through the end. But I want to say that also what we're seeing more and more in the big C church today is that people are coming in with a sense of entitlement where they're expecting the church, listen, to foster and facilitate every meaningful relationship and every experience with God in their life. They have made the church or the pastors or the people in it responsible for facilitating and being the source of their meaningful relationships as well as giving them their experiences with the tangible presence of God. And so we expect worship to be insanely good every single week when worship is only as good as the posture of our heart is. We expect the preaching to be incredible and insightful every week, which it is when Mark is up here. We expect to be said hello to seven times when we put our head down and we kind of, you know, go through like that. Or we get into a group and we expect to become best friends instantly with everyone. And man, we think we're going to start going on family vacations and have a hundred inside jokes. And we're going to be going over to their house and we can just pop in whenever. And we don't have to text anymore. Within the first two months, even though at times we're not consistent, completely authentic and vulnerable and coming with the wrong expectations. I am victim of that. And when we place these unfair expectations on the church and when we come in with this sense of entitlement to the church, all we're setting ourselves up for is a spiritual life of jumping from church to church, place to place, group to group, and person to person because we have made it someone else's job to cultivate spiritual growth in our life rather than taking ownership of our faith simply by doing the things that he has freely given to us so that we can be made aware of and engage in and with the tangible presence of God. The reality is that this is, 
I, I know I can speak for everyone on our church staff that we have an incredible staff of pastors and support people. We have an incredible group of people here whose heart is to see Christ formed in themselves, who are here with pure motives, not perfect, but pure motives, wanting to see Christ formed in ourselves and wanting to see this church be a church that embodies Christ and is filled with Christ in each of us so that we can set up all of these different ways to get you into community. We can give you all these different opportunities to serve and to do all of these things. But friends, there comes a time when we have to take ownership of this aspect of our faith. We have to take ownership of our faith and be responsible for engaging with the presence of God and not putting it on someone else. And just like any other spiritual rhythm in our life that we're called to practice community is a discipline, it's a rhythm that we do so that we can be in the presence of God and be transformed, not by the people that we're with, but by the presence that we now are in. Community is a labor of love, and it takes time to cultivate. It is messy, like really, really messy. There can be unexpected twists and turns. It's different, different every time. It doesn't always meet expectations. It's awkward a lot of the times. It doesn't fit into our schedule 100% of the time, but that is exactly how every other discipline in our life is. I don't always feel like I have enough time to read my Bible in the morning. I, I sometimes hit the snooze button instead of waking up early. I, I don't always feel like I have time to pray and to intercede for people and to contemplate and to praise him. I don't always feel like I have 24 hours every single week just to simply rest and abide in him and to delight in his sovereignty. I don't feel like I have the time to fast because I'm really hungry. I love corner bagel and I love Mickey D's and I love Chipotle and I just love food. I don't feel like I can do all these things and yet it is a discipline. It is called a rhythm, a discipline, a way of Jesus for a reason because it's not going to be easy because you and I have been called to die to ourself, to crucify our flesh, to, to kill our flesh so that we could see Christ formed in us and achieve the ultimate need that our soul longs for and so that we could fulfill the most basic goal of our life. So if you wanna find community here, I am fairly confident you will find it so long as you come with the right expectations and with an understanding that's gonna take work on your part. It may fail at times. I'm preaching to myself, people. It will be painfully hard and that the life you live, the faith that you have, are not your own, but they are his. And you have been called to die to yourself and live in him, through him, and for him. What I find interesting is that the best communities, the strongest communities, the communities in church history that are now in the textbooks were filled with the people who were committed to waking up every single day and dying to themselves for the sake of the gospel whether that was a physical threat in their day or whether that was just going to be an emotional or spiritual threat in their day. They were committed to dying to their desires, to their wants and subjecting and submitting themselves to the will of the Father for the glory of him and his kingdom. And what excites me is that I truly believe that if we're a people who are faithful in seeing Christ formed in ourselves, if we're faithful in seeing Christ formed in others, if we're faithful in pursuing the tangible presence of God, I really do believe that we're gonna move from a community that doesn't just have fun and functions, but we will become a community that flourishes and explodes the gospel of Jesus Christ in not just Anderson, not just South Carolina, not just the US, but the world itself. If we are a people who are committed to dying to ourselves, if I am a person committed to dying to myself, the impact will be seen in the way that you influence others through the spirit of God working in you. 
this truly is my heart for myself. This is my heart for you. This is, this is our heart for Hope Fellowship, that we don't want just a people who are here because it's what our parents did. We don't just want a people here uh, that are full of just uh, of consuming everything rather than contributing, but we are a people who are willing and committed to dying to ourself, all for the sake, not of Hope Fellowship, but for him so that someone else can enter into this new life that you and I have found joy and peace and rest and fulfillment in and on. The beauty is that we are not going to do this perfectly. I probably, I definitely failed like a hundred times this past week in just doing this. And yet it is why we labor, we toil and we strive because he has enabled and empowered us to do the work that he calls us to do. The ultimate, most basic need of our life is to have Christ formed in us. It happens through spirit-powered work out of a resting in the completed work of Christ. And friends, the community that you find yourself in has the power to transform you more into the person of Jesus or to deform you more into the world that you have been freed from. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. We are humbled by the fact that we get to be in your presence and that it's nothing that we did, but it's all that you have achieved. God, we thank you for the fact that you are worthy, you are holy, you are pure, you are righteous, you are sovereign, you are savior, you are son, you are king. We thank you for all that you are and all that you have revealed yourself to be to us so that we may know you, so that we could be known by you. We sit in awe that the king of the universe knows us. Everyone knows the king, but you know us intimately and individually. I pray that no matter where anyone is on this journey of formation, you would provide a peace to us that it's not about what we do, it's not about how well we're doing these things, God, but that you would instill in us a peace and a rest so that we could live out of a rest in the work of Christ. That we could preach the gospel out of the fact that the work is already done. And it doesn't matter what I say today. I could, have, I could preach anything. As long as it's the gospel, your spirit will move and transform and empower. That you have taken the burden off of us. You have said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I pray today that we would be a people who toil, labor, strive, and work out of this rest. Knowing that we are yoked to do to you, knowing that it is you and only you that we can even enter into this relationship, that we can be formed more into you and that we can be fulfilled in all things. It is only by you. God, I pray for Hope Fellowship. I pray for the people in this room that call Hope their home, church, their community. I pray that we as a church would continue to be faithful in providing opportunities and that we as a church would also be faithful in contributing to those opportunities and cultivating a culture of Christ-embodied and centered community. We would create a culture of prayer, a culture of biblical knowledge that does not puff us up, but leads us to love you and serve you with every ounce of our being. I 
I thank you that you are faithful to see it through. God, we love you. In your name we pray and every person said,